So we're looking at the um, Neil McNaughton book, um, came out in sort of 2018. Uh, therefore, there's always some room for updating, particularly with uh, the Theresa May's uh, final period in power and then Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister in 2019, winning an election this time last year in December 2019, and uh, obviously hopefully an exam for you guys in 2021. So Parliament, um, about a mile south of Charing Cross, um, is the centre of London of course, On the north bank of the River Thames stands the Palace of Westminster, commonly known as we tend to call it the House of Parliament. The same way we we tend to call Stormont, which is really Parliament Buildings, Stormont. It's the Stormont Estate, it's a bit bit confusing. And we have Stormont Castle and all of these things. So there are other buildings and quite a few of the departments in that area as well. So for instance, the the, the Department of Health uh, is is just around uh, a Netherly place, I think, a Netherly House, which is just around from there near some of the playing fields that are used by civil service, which is obviously in that part of uh, East Belfast. Um, It's coming in the House of Parliament. It's an iconic place. Parliament stands, as we often say, at the very centre of the UK political system, even of that UK political system, both in terms of what was Europe for many years, for 40 years, and and obviously now with devolution in various forms, both regional, uh, but particularly with the the various home countries, component parts, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales. It's a a different political system. Uh, UK Parliament is important both because of its history and because it is the sovereign body of the United Kingdom. And of course, remember, this is the whole thing about Brexit, you know, sovereignty bringing back control or taking back control. The idea of the ultimate authority is the House of Commons in particular, Parliament as a whole. And that's why I remember in that relation between government and Parliament, yes, we do have a party political system and a government as it has now with a majority of 80 should be able to get through its legislative programme more or less without too much fear. But as the, the rebellion of 55 Conservative backbench MPs seem a lot more confident in challenging the government over things like COVID, then you've got to never take your majority for granted. All national legislation, that's legislation that affects everyone. So budgets that affect Northern Ireland have to go through the parliament. Legislation perhaps to do with things like um, health and welfare, a lot of that can be essentially considered default matters. Education, for instance, the retention of things like having a transfer test, decisions made by an education minister this week to open or not open schools, a decision also um, about examinations is left very much as a devolved matter. It's not Gavin Williamson who decides our GCSEs and levels. His decisions in England may shape them, but they don't decide them. All power stems from Parliament. It can grant powers to an individual or a body and it can take them away. Uh, All members of the government of the UK must also be members of the UK Parliament. Note, at this stage we are calling Westminster UK Parliament, distinguish it from the Scottish Parliament. The term Westminster is another way of distinguishing UK Parliament from any other. Please beware, don't write Westminster, because we have an awful lazy habit in this part of the world of sticking an extra I in. And it's bad enough that uh, the Education Minister, Peter Weir here, uh, signed off a letter recently to schools describing or was describing himself as Peter Weir Minster M-I-N-S-T-E-R of education not a good look when you send something to teachers not a good look in that letter by the way where it also said that uh, in the same sentence that the only reason schools could close if there was a boiler breakdown or a teacher died 
and a lot of teachers were very angry that their uh, their deaths or imminent demise was uh, considered on a similar level to a boiler going down. Not the best phrasing in a sentence. Uh, so be careful what your officials write and be careful what you sign. Uh, government in the UK sits in Parliament and ministers must attend regularly to lead debate, justify policies and accept criticism. There's a lovely little example. If you've got a, say, a four-mark question uh, stating, you know, state, identify two rules of a minister leading a debate, justifying policies, obviously in something like some kind of a question time, questions to the minister, and accept criticism where it is due, you know, obviously being called to the house, perhaps there's a, a crisis or something awful has happened, um, and I'm being held to account for that. Yet government itself is also separate from parliament. This odd thing is it's fused in some ways, but it's separate. The two great institutions have different rules. Government formulates policies, it's uh, the policy creation place, the ideas palace, if you like, whereas parliament debates those policies and passes its opinion on them. Government drafts legislation, whereas Parliament scrutinises that legislation, suggests changes and occasionally may, indeed, vote it down. Not that often, of course. Government ministers and their departments run the day-to-day affairs of the country, while Parliament seeks to ensure that they do it efficiently, give good value for taxpayers' money. You know, that's why the most important select committee is the Public Accounts Committee, always chaired by a senior member of the, the opposition party. Um, the relationship between the government and parliament is crucial to an understanding of how the political system works. Now, we can probably scroll down through the rest of this. There's the objectives of the chapter. Worth having a little look in those, maybe a little bit of pause. Uh, background, you've got the history and status of parliament. I don't think really any of this. Men and dresses, which incidentally has been the case for most of human history. Do remember, historically, men have worn, worn dresses and skirts more often than they've worn trousers. Um, and some people say, no, it's the women that wear the trousers. Boom, boom, move on. Uh, don't go down that line. This is not a carry-on teaching politics video. Uh, so we move down various kings. You can read all of that in your own time. We've got things like Magna Carta mentioned here. You've got uh, Simon de Montfort, uh, all of this sort of stuff. Parliamentary government. We might say a little bit about this. Before we examine Parliament in detail, we have to establish the principles that lie behind its position in the government and politics of the UK. The term parliamentary government is the most appropriate description. Parliamentary government implies the following things. First of all, the UK Parliament is the highest source of political authority. Of course, this was where the European debate came in because the suggestion was that Brussels was in many ways trumping, sorry to use that term, trumping the authority of the UK Parliament. This means that political power may be exercised only if it is being authorised by Parliament. The government must be drawn from Parliament, either the Commons or the Lords. So all the ministers in government, all 100 or so between the Commons and the Lords and the payroll vote, are all themselves within the Parliament. In other words, all members of the government must also be members of the two houses. So for instance, Gordon Brown wanted Peter Mandelson at that stage outside Parliament to come in and head the business portfolio and so he was elevated to the House of Lords so that could happen. That's pretty rare now it must be said to have a senior minister in the House of Lords but it is one way in which you can obviously uh, create a pool of talent, acquire people. Um, there is therefore no strict separation of powers between the legislature and the executive. Instead we say that the powers of the government and those of the legislature, legislature are fused, okay? Not blowing a fuse, they are fused are melded together. In reality, this often means the government is able to dominate Parliament because the majority of its members are government supporters. The payroll vote plus the backbenchers, loyal, manifesto, uh, they support that. They don't want the opposition to win. It is a tribal thing. It's an adversarial system. You know, the, the way physically and the geography is set up in the House of Commons uh, sets that up. Um, 
government must be accountable to parliament. This means two things. First, it means the government, including the prime minister and other ministers, must regularly appear in parliament, explain, justify policies and decisions. So prime minister's question time, we have you know, select committees, uh, even in the legislative proposal, ministers are, are there in public bill committees. Uh, there are questions to various ministers on a regular basis. There are often urgent questions or topical questions. Um, and there are debates that take place as well in which both sides, government and opposition, of various forms must be represented. Um, second, in extreme circumstances, Parliament may remove a government through a vote of no confidence. Now, as you know, Theresa May survived that, um, even though she had been defeated over her uh, version of um, Brexit uh, on a number of occasions, uh, historically a large de- defeat. But her party came together at that stage, at least, um, to give her a vote of confidence. Uh, I think I'd put that in inverted commas. Um, Anyway, so a parliamentary vote of no confidence, again, could be one of those kind of things. You might be asked to explain what it is, uh, or you might be asked to state what it is. It's a vote that takes place in the Commons, usually called by opposition parties. It follows a debate during which the government will have been criticised by its opponents and defended by its supporters. And usually such votes, as I say, fail, though they do call government to account. And occasionally, the last time this has happened was in 1979. Um, if opponents outnumber supporters, the government may lose and will normally resign to face a general election. Should be pointed out in 79, and this was a forerunner of obviously Mrs Thatcher coming to power, the Callaghan government was a minority government and uh, they essentially lost a vote of confidence which was tagged on to a shipping bill, uh, interestingly, and therefore an election took place and Mrs Thatcher came to power and the rest, as they say, is history, uh, which we still live with. Um, so, final thing I'll mention in this little tape is about parliamentary sovereignty. Again, you might be asked what it is. The principle of parliamentary sovereignty is key to understanding the UK system of government. But the reality of parliamentary sovereignty is equally important. The UK Parliament is said to be legally sovereign. This also comes up sometimes, of course, when we're looking at the courts. This is why the Supreme Court can make decisions, uh, usually directed against the government, but ultimately it accepts as well that the, the, the views and the decisions made by Parliament are more have more authority than they have. This is why the courts, for instance, can't challenge primary legislation, but they can challenge secondary legislation if they feel a minister uh, or government has gone beyond its powers, ultra-virus. So Parliament is the source of all political power. No individual or body may exercise power unless it has been granted by Parliament. In effect, of course, Parliament does delegate most of its powers to ministers, to devolve governments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, to local authorities and to the courts of law. Parliament may restore to itself any powers that have been delegated to others. So, for instance, Northern Ireland could be put under direct rule. Uh, Scotland may be given or not given a referendum, more likely not given one, if that's the view of Parliament, and indeed initially the view of government. Parliament may make any laws it wishes, and they shall be enforced by the courts and other authorities. Of course, they can't make a law, for instance, saying that all men must wear beards. You know, these have to have a degree of reasonableness about it, but they have the ability to make laws. So there are, there are new laws coming in, for instance, immigration laws from Priti Patel's department. She's still there um, on like an Australian point system about who can qualify based on their qualifications and likely salary to come into the country. Some people worry that that particular law, when implemented, will particularly affect uh, lower paid jobs within the health service, welfare system, 
uh, you know, various things in terms of construction uh, in, in factories, etc., where people have come in from other countries abroad who are prepared to do the job and also do it for a lower pay. So it could have major implications in terms of filling those jobs and also what pay people are going to expect to get for them. Anyway, Parliament is not bound by any of its predecessors. In other words, laws passed by Parliaments in the past are not binding on the current Parliament. Existing laws may be amended or repealed at will. So if Labour was to come into power, they could decide that they will want to introduce legislation to rejoin the European Union or change some of the, the terms, maybe go for a different kind of trade deal. So it's no government can bind its uh, successors uh, to the law that they've made. Parliament says cannot bind its successors. This means that the current Parliament cannot pass any laws that will prevent future Parliaments from amending or repealing them. In effect, therefore, we say that the laws cannot be entrenched against future change. Now, there's generally this view that things, for instance, that gave young people the vote at the age of 18, uh, those kinds of laws are not going to be changed easily. But if you take something that some people thought might be an entrenched law, like the Fixed Parliament Act, there are already moves about to have that removed. The reality seems to be that it doesn't seem to function in the way it was intended in guaranteeing uh, a full five-year parliament and therefore taking, to a certain extent, some powers away from uh, the, the government. If, however, we consider another type of sovereignty, political sovereignty, we can say that Parliament has lost much of its sovereignty. Political sovereignty refers not to strictly legal power, but where political power lies in reality. It is the practical location of power rather than its theoretical location. Let's expand upon that. In reality, most political power lies with government. Normally, though not always, the government of the day enjoys a majority in the House of Commons. Now, that has not been the case quite a bit of the time. There was the coalition 2010 to 15. John Major uh, ended up being in a minority, having lost a majority of 20 that he won in 1992. Uh, we have the situation, obviously, of Theresa May having a bit of a majority, Cameron having a bit of a majority, not a large one, that she then lost that and then depended upon the DUP. So there have been quite a few examples, in spite of the fact that first-past-the-post system usually guarantees majority, that the way the electorate is divided, uh, that hung parliaments or balanced parliaments, who prefer a more positive term, are more common than they used to be in the past. Um, but this little point is worth developing. Uh, normally, as it says, they have a majority uh, and can therefore virtually guarantee this proposal will be passed in Parliament, even if they, they do face you know, some kind of restrictions and limits and revisions in the House of Lords. It's sometimes said, therefore, that the sovereignty of Parliament is in reality the sovereignty of the majority party. Very good point. It is generally understood that the government has an electoral mandate, in other words, a right, a legitimacy, an authority to carry out its manifesto commitments. Thus, we get in the House of Lords a Salisbury Convention and Parliament Parliament should not thwart that authority. We expect Parliament to block government plans only if it is seen to be abusing its mandate or operating beyond it. Now, of course, this is why COVID creates a bit of a problem. The 2019 manifesto didn't have anything in it about COVID. Therefore, when things like crises occurs, or government decides it wants to go in a new path, new direction, maybe because of an economic crisis, or wants to maybe increase taxation or introduce a new tax, uh, like you know, the poll tax, for instance, which dogged Mrs. Thatcher, ultimately in a sense brought her down, uh, then obviously everything's up for grabs. In addition, of course, at a general election, political sovereignty returns to the people, you know, who are both electing a new parliament and giving a new government a fresh mandate. Um, 
But before we dismiss Parliament as the sovereign body in theory only, we must remember that Parliament retains enormous reserve powers. In some circumstances it can block legislation. In modern times the House of Lords does this quite frequently, even if those divert, uh, defeats are reversed. And really exceptional circumstances, Parliament can dismiss a government by passing a vote of no confidence. I said that happened in 1979. Uh, and that's an example of a reserve power. They vote to veto legislation and a vote of no confidence. Um, yeah, the monarch, the Queen, technically has these powers, but is even less likely in Parliament to use them. I know there was, for instance, quite a bit of a dispute, if you've been watching the crime, uh, and this was where maybe it's a little bit more factual than fictional, um, where over, for instance, sanctions against South Africa, which was running an apartheid regime, that Mrs Thatcher was a bit reluctant to push for those, while the Queen, as head of Commonwealth, and also many nations uh, from Africa were part of that. Uh, and I think her sympathies lay with um, trying to change the regime in South Africa, certainly not to legitimise a, a regime that couldn't be arguably um, you know, considered uh, legitimate. So that would be an a, example, but it's, 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 it's very, very um, unusual. There was the sacking um, of a prime minister in Australia by the British Governor General, who's a representative of the Crown. Some people thought that drew the monarch into in the politics of another country. So it's wrong to say that the, the monarchy doesn't have some kind of aspect of politics to it. But the Queen has had to tiptoe over, well, since 1952, for uh, well over nearly nearly 70 years uh, and many, many prime ministers to try not to get entangled in, in politics in that sense. Okay, so we'll, we'll finish that one there and uh, that's the first recording on basically background to Parliament. So, um, let's go back to contents. Um, Contents page, remember, we're dealing with Parliament. Seems to like to default to PM and Cabinet. So we'll just go there. Uh, this part we've gone through. 96, 97. Please note the objectives there of the chapter. All sort of background and moving through, we'll get to hopefully page 200. And we'll take it for about three or four more pages do some sections which I'll obviously label. Back to 200. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to start here with a section on parliamentary sovereignty. And although clearly, if you think about the whole Brexit referendum, you also by bringing back control. Obviously, during the, the talks about withdrawal, clearly one of the things was established by the UK Supreme Court, yes, Parliament was sovereign, and that's why it was necessary to get a vote in Parliament, and this case extended the, the, the period of time for the withdrawal agreement. Also, parliamentary sovereignty trumped, uh, only because the courts ultimately stood up to it, the prorogation or attempted prorogation that Boris Johnson tried to implement um, in 2019, suspending Parliament, so that again. Parliamentary sovereignty has been eroded. So five main issues in which it can be said that parliamentary sovereignty has been eroded. These are as follows. A great deal of legislative power, of course, way back in 73, moved to the European, well, in those days, the EEC, what we would now call the European Union. European law uh, was seen as superior to British law. 
Okay, that was one of the reasons why ever since people opposed to our closer contacts with Europe uh, tried to fight that. Uh, it was something that was fought for by um, a strange combination of people in the 1970s when there was a referendum in 75 on whether we were going to stay in the EC. Uh, people like Enoch Powell and the conservative, far conservative right, an outlier there. And Tony Benn, uh, father of Hillary Benn, Labour, was a Labour MP, but uh, Tony Benn opposing it. A more than socialist grounds, the kind of grounds that Jeremy Corbyn would oppose on in fact Jeremy Corbyn's real uh, a huge admirer of Tony Benn um, as, as, as from the Labour side so European law however became superior to British law so if there was any conflict EU law would have to prevail at the same time Parliament could not pass any law that would conflict with EU law However, with the UK's commitment, which is actually fulfilled post this textbook, to leave the EU sometime after 2018, uh, all the sovereignty will be returned to Westminster. Now, we have left the EU. That has happened. What they're negotiating at the moment is a trade deal or, or a non-trade deal or some kind of arrangement uh, over trade with tariffs or free trade or whatever it happens to be. There remain large areas of policy that have not passed to Brussels, including things like criminal law, tax law, social security, health and education. So European law doesn't determine things like our the examination system. It doesn't determine our welfare system. Uh, it doesn't determine things like what we just de determine is a life sentence or not a life sentence for a particular crime. But nevertheless, there have been significant shifts of legislative authority. I used to always say to my classes that something along the lines of 70 to 75% of legislation has to be uh, formed in such a way that it does not conflict with European law lest it faces some kind of challenge and that's the way it was but now that has obviously moved on. Um, but there have shifts of legislative authority obviously over things like trade, surprise surprise, the environment, employment rights, consumer protection for example. Okay. Uh, second one as we've seen executive power has been has grown considerably in recent decades this involved a transfer of political but not legal of the sovereignty to government. Uh, the Gina Miller Supreme Court case in 2017, the one that we have looked at when we're looking at the, the role of the UK Supreme Court, helped to clarify this relationship and I've already referred you to the, the chapter on the judiciary. Uh, thirdly, it is increasingly the practice to hold referendums when important constitutional changes are being proposed, such as devolution, one in 2014 for Scotland, which wasn't successful, EU membership, obviously the 2016 one, which uh, led to a 52-48 uh, uh, preference to leave in that binary decision. The electoral system, obviously over alternative vote, the Liberal Democrats have campaigned for, which is almost forgotten about now and not surprisingly low turnout and it was rejected and the election of city mayors the the andy burnham's of this world if you think say for instance in manchester although the results of such referendums are not technically binding in fact the 2016 referendum on brexit was an advisory vote it is almost inconceivable that parliament would ignore the popular will of the people so in effect sovereignty in such cases cases does return to the people and away from parliament so at the Outside Britain, and the EU was clearly something that undermined or eroded, if that's the right word, parliamentary sovereignty. The executive within uh, the, in Parliament has, by its actions, even things like secondary legislation, has arguably diluted parliamentary sovereignty. And also things like referendums have taken away that from Parliament to the people. A fourth area is there is some room for controversy over the status of Human Rights Act and the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, which it establishes in law. So the European Convention of Human Rights brought into British domestic law, which formed the Human Rights Act, uh, part of the legacy of Tony Blair, 
uh, the late 1990s, 1998, became law effectively by 2000. The ECHR is not legally binding on the UK Parliament, so Parliament retains its sovereignty. However, it is also clear that Parliament does treat that ECHR as, as if it were supreme. In other words, it would only be in extraordinary circumstances that Parliament would assert its sovereignty over the ECHR. And finally, there's devolution, especially that to Scotland. As with referendums, Parliament can restore to itself all the powers that is delegated. Now, of course, this applies to a certain extent and a limited extent uh, for Northern Ireland because the institutions there have collapsed from time to time. Uh, and while direct rule is the last thing seems to be on the mind of British governments, there is always that possibility. Uh, it's not like a federal system uh, like in America where you know the state of uh, Louisiana, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, whatever happens is, is, is guaranteed. Uh, you cannot uh, sort of take away the state of Tennessee, uh, but you can take away the system of government in Northern Ireland, the devolved system. It's difficult to imagine circumstances in which powers granted to the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh and Northern Ireland assemblies would be removed. Uh, here again, sovereignty has been transferred in reality, though not technically constitutional law. So we could say that parliamentary sovereignty is now partly a myth. Uh, but before we you, would jump to such a conclusion, you should remind yourselves again of Parliament's reserve powers. UK uh, has left the EU, and so to restore all sovereignty, Parliament can thwart the will of government. Devolution could be cancelled. I mean, the Northern Ireland Assembly has been suspended and direct rule from London restored on a, a number of occasions. And Parliament could, under exceptional circumstances, decide not to accept the verdict of a referendum. Furthermore, if there comes a time when government does not enjoy secure majority, it could be the, the balance of power, both legal and political, will return to Parliament, uh, much as it did in the middle part of the 19th century. So, yes, we have sometimes what we say executive dominance, but it's not a guarantee. And it does depend on a variety of factors. Uh, a little study tip says here, be careful not to confuse the terms parliamentary government and parliamentary sovereignty. The former describes the political reality of the UK, in other words, uh, a governing party with a parliamentary majority, particularly in the House of Commons, can govern. The latter is a constitutional principle, sort of part of the rule book. It describes a legal reality. Um, now, I'll finish that one there. So we'll just continue actually the recording on Anchor just beyond that. So we're going to look now at the House of Commons and House of Lords, uh, the structure of the UK Parliament and its office holders. So let me just make that a little bit bigger. So we're dealing with the text. So the UK Parliament, as you know, is divided into two houses, the Commons and the Lords. Uh, I suggested by McNaughton, you should be a little bit cautious here. The House of Lords is often referred to as the Upper House. That's, that's a slightly misleading term. It's a throwback to a time when the House of Lords was indeed the Upper or Senior House. The House of Commons, uh, not surprisingly known as the Lower House, is now very much the Senior House, despite its name, Senior in terms of power, as we know. Uh, the main reason for this reversal is the Commons is elected and the Lords is not. A parliament with two houses or chambers is known as bicameral. Uh, think of the word camera, uh, is literally a box uh, and therefore there's made up of two boxes, bicameral, bi for two, like bicycle, two wheels. Most democratic systems in the world are bicameral. Um, New Zealand isn't, uh, there are a few others, uh, but normally bicameral is the case. Sometimes they're of equal standing uh, for, for different reasons, like the US House of Representatives and the Senate, they make up the Congress. Um, but uh, quite a lot of the time, like in Ireland, uh, where you have the Doyle and the Senate, where the Senate, the Senate, if you like, is a much weaker uh, body, and the, the Doyle itself is the more powerful body. So much more like the British system. Uh, the usual reason for this, um, and this applies to the UK, 
is that it creates some kind of balance in the political system. Very often the second chamber has a different kind of membership to ensure better representation and to prevent the first chamber having too much power. The UK system has evolved, if you like, naturally, however. So the position of the second chamber of the House of Lords is somewhat unclear as to its authority, legitimacy, etc. In systems that have codified constitutions like the United States, it is much more obvious why the second chamber exists. So in America, it's to represent the states. And so smaller states, say like Wyoming, have two senators as to larger states like, say, Texas. Uh, whereas now the representatives in America, it's based purely uh, on population. Uh, so a state like California has 54 uh, members of the House of Representatives. A state like, again, somewhere like Montana has one. Um, so a study tip here is don't confuse ministers and MPs. It's true that front bench MPs who are members of the governing party are also ministers. This does not mean that MPs are in general ministers. Backbench MPs are not ministers, whichever party they belong to. Okay, And uh, there's a little sort of diagrammatic way of looking at the, the composition the UK and the composition of the US. Not a bad one to sort of look at now because for A2, uh, it's, of, it's of great relevance. Um, the structure of the Commons, 650 members at the moment. Some plans through what are called um, sort of boundary commissions to reduce that. Uh, for a population of around 65, well, 70 million, shall we say, it's uh, probably too many, given that uh, in the House of Commons, uh, there's you know 650 members representing 70 million in the House of Representatives. Okay, in a federal system in the United States, 435 uh, members there representing some 350 million people. So kind of degree of inconsistency there. Constituencies are roughly equal size, normally containing between 60 and 80 thousand voters. The largest is the Isle of Wight. It's treated as one constituency with about 120 thousand voters. Most constituencies are in England, that's about 533 of them. There are 59 in Scotland, 14 in Wales and 18 in Northern Ireland. Um, there was a proposal to reduce the number to 600 by 2020. It ain't happened yet. Um, clearly that would involve reducing uh, Northern Ireland is overrepresented, for instance. Population of 1.8 million with 18 seats is distinctly overrepresented. It should really be 12. All MPs in the UK represent a political party. Occasionally you get the odd independent MP like Martin Bell in the past, uh, but that's rare. Uh, MPs are divided into front bench and back bench MPs. Front bench MPs are more senior in the sense that they are spokespeople for their parties on, on either side of the be it opposition parties or be it the governing party. Uh, they are ministers and party officials appointed by the PM using patriot powers. Normally there are about 90 front bench MPs on the governing side, uh, certainly in the House of Commons, then you would add another 30 and 20 to 30 in the, in the, the Lords forming the government or the payroll vote. Uh, those in the Lords don't distinctly, well they are paid actually because they, they occupy an office and have a job to do. The leading members the main opposition party uh, are called spokespersons and shadow ministers, and uh, they're described as front bench MPs. There would normally be about 50 of these. The total number of front bench MPs is therefore uh, 140, um, 150. Uh, front bench MPs are expected to be loyal to the party leaderships, though this tendency did collapse, obviously, when Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader, and especially after Labour MPs passed a vote of no confidence against him in June 2016. And the same thing we've noticed under Theresa May, under David Cameron, and now under Boris Johnson. Um, backbench MPs are very much in the majority. They can be more independent than front bench MPs, uh, but are still expected to show party loyalty, uh, particularly over key votes. Key terms here. Bicameral, 
and backbencher. Leave that with you. MPs do much of their work in committees, and you'll notice this also particularly, they say in Congress, the American Congress, uh, American Congress at work is work, does its work in committees. The main two types of committees in the UK are select committees and legislative committees, or public bill committees, as we call them. The nature and work of these committees is described below. All main parties appoint whips uh, who work under a chief whip. Uh, the whips uh, are mainly uh, concerned with ensuring that uh, MPs and their parties are informed about parliamentary business. So the chief whip, for instance, uh, in the government, who's a member of the cabinet, is a guy called Mark Spencer. Don't confuse him with a, a retail outlet. He's not Mark Sand Spencer. Haha. <laughs> um, but the whips also try to ensure party loyalty and persuade reluctant MPs to support their party's lines. Whips may also inform their party leadership how MPs are feeling about an issue and may warn of possible rebellions and dissidents. So they're like a conduit, uh, like a drain pipe, or you know, they're sort of going both ways uh, to the to the leadership and also to the back benches. And often uh, their main job is not sanction or punishment. Their main job is actually to uh, seek concessions themselves of, of government ministers over legislation, which may be having difficulties for some MPs uh, to support. The proceedings of the House of Commons are presided over by a speaker. Uh, he or she is an MP. It's now Lindsay Hoyle. Uh, it was before that uh, John Burkai. Um, but uh, and there's been one woman uh, who's been the Speaker of the House of Commons now in the House of Lords. He or she is an MP who is elected by all other MPs. Though the Speaker comes from one of the parties, he or she is expected to put aside party allegiances when chairing the Commons. They're also expected not to have their seat during a general election contested, although John Burkai had his seat contested in the 2017 election uh, by, actually, I think it was by UKIP. The Speaker, there are also deputies who sit temporarily. It's expected to organise the business of Parliament along with the party leaderships to maintain order, and discipline debates, decide who gets to speak in debates or question times, and to settle disputes about Parliament's work. Uh, in the Parliament elected in 2017, Burkow was Speaker, uh, also uh, was there before that. Uh, somewhat controversial, reforming, challenging, uh, colourful. Um, and uh, Lindsay Hoyle perhaps had not lived up to that, tried to sort of calm perhaps the rule of the Speaker's office a little bit. You might get a question. Uh, certainly on the rule of whips. You certainly could get a speaker on the rule of 10 marker, perhaps to explain the main rules and functions of the speaker. Um, just leave you that there. Those figures are now out of date because they refer to the period uh, around 2017. And uh, scrolling up here, make up the house as well. Uh, a little bit about how to become an MP. I don't think you're ever going to be asked directly about that. Uh, you will be asked about the House of Lords and I'll just leave the recording at that point now.